0: There are few decades in film history that have been written about and even fetishized as much as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Gold hit a record $850 per ounce. Indira Gandhi was voted back into power in India. The Rockford Files aired its final episode on NBC. Jimmy Carter decided to boycott the Moscow Olympics, and Paul McCartney went to jail for 10 days in Japan for marijuana possession. That was the world in January of 1980, and now we're going to take a look at the movies that were released that month. I'm Drew McQueenie, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host here on the show, Scott Weinberg. Scott, how are you doing today?
1: Very good, Drew. Welcome to the inaugural episode Bear warning to our first-time listeners, which you all are, (laughs) January of 1980, not a great year, even for somebody like me who loves movie year
0: 1980. Yeah, this is a pretty rocky month of movies, but that's kind of a great way to jump in because it's going to show you how every month during a calendar year during that decade worked. And look, some months were phenomenal, some months weren't. Uh, there's going to be months where it feels like we have 700 movies we can't wait to discuss. And I know there's a month coming up during this year where I think we have three movies total. That's just going to be the ups and downs of the series. But that's part of what we're talking about is the, the way release schedules work back then and, and what it was like to be a movie fan when you had this lineup in theaters. And one thing that I think younger movie fans can't really
1: uh, relate to all that much is if you were a hardcore movie nerd back then, you didn't have many options. You had to wait for theatrical releases or maybe catch something on network television. HBO and VCRs were just coming into form. To have a month like this was painful for, for you know, at least for a kid.
0: I know I got into home video when it felt like very early, but I still didn't have one at this point. And no, no. Uh, HBO was something I sporadically had access to. Yeah, uh, it, it really was catch and catch can back then. And uh, well, how and, old were you in January of 1980, Drew? I was nine. I was seven. So, I I mean, some of these were movies that I saw because my parents wanted to. Some of them were movies that I saw because I wanted to. And some of these were movies that I caught up on later. And we'll talk about that. We'll talk about kind of how we had our first access to these, when we saw them, when we caught up with them, um, and uh, how they've held up. I want to get into both of those as we go through. I I think the easiest thing to do is just jump right in. And the first movie that we're going to talk about this first month is truly an unflushable piece of shit. So what better way to start than with the Village People epic Can't Stop the Music.
1: It's the musical extravaganza that launches the 80s. It's Alan Carr's Can't Stop the Music. You can't stop the music. Once you see it, you'll know why you can't stop the glamour. Yeah, what's interesting is that Every generation has their rock star vehicles. Glitter, back in the day, What Rick Springfield had a movie. The Fat Boys got a movie. Vanilla Ice, the Spice Girls. You know, throughout the years, this is not uncommon. It's just that in the late 70s and early 80s, they were particularly
0: awful. Yeah, well, Alan Carr was um, a frequent center. He was also the producer of the almost unbelievably unwatchable Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, which uh, abused Beatles music on a level that is hard to explain. What's mind boggling, if you're going to pick somebody to hopefully make this hip with it kind of of the moment movie featuring the village people and disco music, and you're going to sell this lifestyle, the person that you want to hire is Nancy Walker, born in 1922. Yeah. You want to tell people who, who she was to our generation? Well, Nancy Walker, you would recognize her as an actor most likely if uh, you watch television at all during the seventies or the eighties. Uh, she was Ida on Rhoda. She was the little, tiny red-haired lady. Uh, she was the maid in Murder by Death, which hopefully you know. And if you don't, then stop this podcast right now and go. I was a thinking. Copy of-
1: I was thinking more of her endless string of paper-towel commercials.
0: Rosie, Bounty and Charmin are offering their savings of the year. Why? Uh-huh. Bounty and Charmin are offering 25 cents in coupons in this week's paper. Look, <laughs> oops. For you, the quicker
1: picker-upper.
0: For me, savings on Bounty and Charmin. I'm getting over to
1: Mr. Whipple's store. A very good actress, but it's weird to have her directing this movie, uh, way too old for the material. But even so, it, whoever they got to direct it, it was going to be terrible. I mean, it's plotless.
0: It's got Steve Gutenberg, for Christ's sake. That's one of the amazing things. You look at the cast of this, and it's Steve Gutenberg, Valerie Perrine, and, at the time, Bruce Jenner, uh, were the three leads. And, man, it is a collision of weird charisma. It's really hard to get your head around how weird this movie is. Bruce Valanche, Walking Punchline, uh, was the original writer of the script. And it was designed to sort of tell the mythical version of how the village people got together and it has nothing to do with the real version. By the time this movie was made, one of the guys who's in the film was already out of the band.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, and, you know, and, and if you were to torture yourself and run through a, a, a series of these rock star or, or rock band movies, obviously there's always, you know, exceptions to the rule. The Beatles were featured in several good movies and there's always, you know, eight miles a good film, you know. But generally speaking, these movies are just made because a band is very hot right now. They figure, all right, if we get six or seven musical numbers in there, that's about 45 or 50 minutes. And we only have to fill another 20 so minutes with people wandering around a disco and and bad melodrama.
0: Another thing that's really weird about this film is that. Clearly, the village people uh, traded on gay iconography. And now as an adult, you can look at them and you can see how uh, they were very much in tune with sort of gay uh, archetypical fantasy characters. And that's what they were meant to be. And my God, their songs. This is one of the weird things about being a kid in that era. YMCA... In the Navy, those songs, they were Macho Man. They were huge, huge hits. And as a kid, you had zero reference for nope. what they were actually about. They were nope. just catchy songs. Yeah, catchy they were disco-tunes. kind
1: of a subversive
0: band in a very obvious way. you know? yeah, Well, it, not it, it, subversive to adults. What's crazy is they were open about it in terms of their actual performances. And When they did concerts, there was nothing subtle about what they did. But in this movie, they choose to downplay it so much that... It, you'd be hard-pressed to, to be sure whether or not they know that this is gay iconography. It's also did, a shocking PG. When you look at this as a PG-rated film, you realize how weird the rating system has been over the years. There is an abundance of dong in this movie. And there's a topless hot tub scene with Valerie Pryne, and yet it's a PG. And I remember in the theater, my mom flipping
1: out at this movie's rating. Well, you know as well as I do that back then in in the late seventies, early to mid eighties, PG was pretty wide open. I mean, there was yeah. you could you
0: could get away with some pretty hardcore violence and topless women galore. One of the one of the things that I wish I'd been around for was to see some of the production of this movie. When they were shooting this, it was the same exact moment that they were shooting cruising, also in New York. The gay community was Adamant that cruising was a nightmare and it was gonna be it was gonna be the death of their culture and It was gonna be uh, a movie that turned America against gay people earlier today
1: Transamerica tried to reassure the gay community by setting up a special screening of cruising 40 prominent local gays saw the movie, but apparently the screening did not have the desired effect Every day in this city dozens of gay people are beaten up come close to being murdered this film it not only exaggerates that it is almost an incitement to go out and murder people i think it would be smart of the company who produces to just do the country a service and withdraw it but i wouldn't say withdraw something from point of view of censorship from a point of view of extremely poor taste it's a piece of
0: crap and there were huge protests designed to disrupt the shooting of the film what was great was They got these two films confused constantly. So there were constant protests shutting down Can't Stop the Music, and they would have to bring the village people outside and show them, look, this is the one we're doing here to get people to back off to let them actually shoot these films. They had to leave New York eventually. They couldn't shoot most of the movie there. Um, a lot of it was Glendale and here in Los Angeles. I believe we've dedicated quite enough time to the Village People <laughs> movie. Uh, Wait, no, I want to do another 25 minutes just on Can't Stop the a Music. a
1: fascinating relic if you're interested in this era and this kind of <laughs> and this band. But if you're looking for an entertaining movie about the disco era, ooh, this ain't it. No, 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 it is not. Our second movie of our inaugural episode is a... Rarely discussed, underrated, ghost story, but what I found is that when you bring it up, you get two reactions. It's either never heard of it, or I love that movie. And Mm. that is Peter Medak's The Changeling. Within this old house live two residents. One of them is
0: John Russell, composer, professor. The other has been dead for over 70 years.
1: It scared the living crap out of me when I was a kid. I think I saw it on HBO, or it might have been a network movie of the week. All I remember is that George C. Scott is in a giant house, and he starts hearing sounds and noises, and, of course, there's a ghost. I, I think when people discuss the maybe not the best, but the most underappreciated ghost stories, The Changeling is right up there
0: with the innocents
1: yeah. or the evictors.
0: When I uh, interviewed Amenabar when he released The, uh, the Others, Uh, this is the movie he kept talking about over and over as the movie that was his favorite ghost story when he was young. That makes sense. It's of that tradition where it is a a very slow burn. Yep. The scares when they happen are motivated more from a place of character, and it is a very subtle movie. But, man, it, it was one of those films that creeped me out in a way that horror films didn't at that point. My introduction to horror was more like the graphic end of things. And so... This was one of the first times I saw a very quiet, very subtle horror film with actors who were considered more like mainstream, dramatic actors, and it really messed with me. I remember being very upset by the film after I saw it, and it was Nightmare Fuel. I love that now, but it's also a film that I haven't seen in a while, and I'm curious if going back, if I would have that same reaction to it.
1: I think it holds up because it's just a well-written, refined, simple ghost story, I think The Changeling would play well to younger horror fans now, like the old Dark House played to us when we were 20 or 25. So uh, The Changeling is a bit old fashioned and maybe a bit outdated, but I-, I would bet that lots of filmmakers who specialize in horror have uh, a fond place in their hearts for this
0: movie. I'll bet you Guillermo del Toro loves this movie. The Changeling? Oh, absolutely. I'd be willing to bet money. Yes. And it's weird because Peter Medak is one of those guys, he had a a real up-and-down career, and he's still working. He's done what a lot of filmmakers have. He works primarily in television now. Um, But he did an episode of Masters of Horror. He did The Washingtonians. He's directed episodes of Hannibal and Breaking Bad. So he definitely keeps his hand in uh, and is working hard. But you look back at his film career, and he's got movies as good as uh, Romeo is Bleeding or The Craze or The Ruling Class, and he's got movies Uh as flat-out terrible is Species 2. Yep. Zorro the Gay Blade was his. The textbook definition
1: of a journeyman or carpet bag or whatever you want to call it, and I, I like those directors a lot, but what you find is that a guy who is just a director for hire, he's beholden to the material, and like nobody was going to make Zorro the Gay Blade a good film.
0: He had a great cast in this. I I, I really like Barry Morse, um, who's one of those guys he, who showed up in everything. He was a Kubrick favorite. But mostly it's George C. Scott and Trish Vandevere who were married, and they're so good in this movie together. Melvin Douglas as well. Oh, Melvin Douglas is tremendous. We're going to talk a lot about Melvin Douglas over the course of the 80s just because it was the sort of the end of his career, and he went out swinging. Like He was one of those guys who right to the end was giving great performances in really interesting films. Now, I know we have one up next that you're a big fan of. I never saw this film when it came out. I only recently saw this film, and I'd say recently, probably about four years ago, uh, when Warner Archive was first doing their online service. I subscribed for a couple of months, and my thing back then was, I'll watch whatever, because I don't know half of these movies. There's a reason that you don't know a lot of those movies, and this is one of those that deservedly vanished. It is directed by Jeff Warner, co-written by the star of the film, Robbie Benson, And I'm talking, of course, about Die Laughing. Now, at last, the motion picture that shows the world how to succeed in rock and roll without really dying. It is Robbie Benson is a cab driver who, and I'm not kidding, ends up in possession of a monkey who has the formula for an atomic bomb in his head. And he has to
1: avoid being murdered it almost feels like it wants to be a wacky version of Taxi Driver,
0: if you can imagine oh that. God, yeah. It is a terrible film. And it's Elsa Lancaster's last movie. Can you imagine Elsa Lancaster sitting on the set of this thing, watching Robbie Benson mug, wondering what the hell is happening? Yeah, and to those who don't know, Robbie
1: Benson was a pretty big uh, teen idol, I guess you'd call him, in this era. Started in some good movies, some bad. And then his most famous role, of course, is he played the voice of Beast
0: in Beauty and the Beast. I thought I told you to come down to dinner.
1: I'm not hungry.
0: You come out or I'll, I'll, I'll break down the door. Most people still can't believe that's Robbie Benson. Like, if you know who Robbie Benson is, that seems like a crazy left turn. I find it
1: hard to believe we're discussing this movie on a podcast in 2016.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I bet Robbie Benson would be surprised we're discussing this movie on a podcast in 2016. Uh, and, you know, it had a good cast. It had like Charles Durning was in it. Bud Court was in it. Uh, they threw a lot of people, uh, Peter Coyote, Charles Fleischer, like they threw a lot of interesting people in there. But man, it, it's all about showing off Robbie Benson, and he was an annoying kid on every yeah. level. I have a hard time believing he was a teen heartthrob. He's got that crazy, weird, nerdy voice. He sounds like Eddie Diesel. Five years,
1: we've been playing 15 bucks a night club dates in places like Medstone, Redwood City, and especially
0: this one where it's a comedy and he's the one who's deciding what's funny. It's a lot of shtick. It's a lot of falling down, and it's him. It's alternately him doing musical numbers with his band that he's putting together and raising money for, and then doing crazy slapstick with a monkey. Yeah. Oh my God. Uh, If you if you want a small taste of this, but you don't ever want to bother seeing the whole movie, check out the amazing Synapse Films DVD Forty Second Street Forever volume four which is a collection of nothing but trailers and on that disc they've got the trailer for die laughing trust me it's all you ever need of the film
1: although you could probably find the die laughing trailer on youtube as well i will echo your recommendation of the uh, 42nd street forever that whole series is lovely you could just put okay. that stuff you could put put those trailers on while you're writing or playing a video game they're so much fun all right well our next film is no less obscure But it is a a cool sci-fi premise. The movie's not so great, but I remember as a kid, I was really into it because 1980, sci-fi was just coming back into vogue, and kids my age were apeshit for anything with a spaceship. The film is called Hangar 18, Hangar 18. (laughs) On October 24th, 1979, a huge metallic disc crashed in the Arizona desert military authorities moved what they found to Hangar 18 at a remote Air Force base. Now an incredible new motion picture reveals startling proof that the government has a flying saucer in its possession and the dead bodies of alien pilots. Why have the facts been kept hidden from the American public? Learn the terrifying truth. See Hangar 18, rated PG. If you saw it on television when you were a kid, you might know it under the title Invasion Force. It stars Gary Collins, Robert Vaughn, and the awesome Darren McGavin, and it is about a satellite uh, that collides with a spaceship. And then, of course, the inevitable, this being 1980, the inevitable conspiracy that has to uh, grow to keep it all quiet. I, I guess we're going to keep saying this a lot. But if you like this genre, you could do worse than to to dig up Hangar 18 and enjoy some uh, paranoia
0: sci-fi from 1980. I love right a particular uh, subgenre that this is, which is Sun Classic Pictures. Yeah, and their whole thing was they put out these. I can't call them documentaries because they're not. But like Chariots no. of the Gods, uh, In Search of Noah's Ark. Yeah, I know they did a Bigfoot one that played near me theatrically. Yeah, Bigfoot. Yep. Big Foot, yep. And, they, and their whole thing was these movies that were all about the true story and they were all nonsense absolute nonsense i went to peter Hurkos, the world's foremost psychic detective at his home in los angeles i took with me unknown
1: to him and concealed in a suitcase a plaster cast of a giant bigfoot footprint who has worked with police on such cases
0: as the Boston Strangler and the Ann Arbor murders has the unusual psychic gift of being able to read facts from unseen objects the sense of the reality
1: and truth of such objects and to describe in detail from telepathic images in his
0: brain what is hidden from his view and I, I remember as a kid Loving Sun Classic pictures because they were totally batshit ridiculous. Yeah. They, oh, Bermuda Triangle, they did one about that too. Yes. This one, uh, it came and went fast. I remember it, it was right around the same, I, I think it was a little later than this, but it was right around the same era as Capricorn 1. And I always kind of think of them in the same. Yeah. Uh, and marooned. They're as all the same kind, of- kind of thing where it's the government's hiding a secret from you. We're going to tell you the true story. And then you watch it and you realize, oh, you. not only is this not the true story, even if there are aliens, it's not like this. This is completely ridiculous. The next one, I have tried several times over the years to give this film a chance to be fair to this movie. And uh, I am an apologist on some level for the, uh, the filmmaker behind this. Oh, come uh, on. And I, and I say that saying there are great movies he's made. There are terrible movies he's made. But once he hit the 80s, the films that he was explicitly responsible for, that he wrote, that he directed, that he made, they were awful. Right? And, this and, and
1: before we even get into the title, this is the kind of stuff that somebody at the very tail end of their career would be churning out. And at this stage in his career, Jerry Lewis was not that old.
0: <laughs> yeah, not, not comparatively. I, there are guys who work a lot longer today and who are treated a lot better, but... Jerry Lewis, by the time he made this movie, hardly working. I'm sorry. Oh. Why are you sorry?
1: Well, I messed you up. I messed up your car. I messed up your kid. <laughs> he
0: was messed up a long time ago. <laughs> anyway. It was a catastrophe. His his career was a
1: catastrophe. Oh, man, I saw all of his 80s stuff before I saw any of his quote-unquote Classic stuff, which wow. I have. I've seen his, some of his better films from the 60s. And my experience with Jerry Lewis as a kid was hardly working, cracking up, and slapstick of another kind. Jesus Christ. And, and yeah, it's, it's, now, How's
0: that my fault? That's not my. It's his fault. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, to set this into context, his last film that was released was Which Way to the Front, 1970. And then he made The Day the Clown Cried, which, of course, famously has never been released and was a serious drama about a circus clown who was put into service by the Germans to lead Jewish kids into the ovens and keep them happy until they were killed. Uh, It is a nightmare of a script. There's a reason it stopped his career cold. And then eight years later, this was supposed to be his comeback film. This was, he was the writer, the lead actor, the director. This was supposed to be his big return to form. What I find amazing is If you make a movie like The Day the Clown Cried that stops your career cold, why would your next film, your comeback film, star you playing a clown? That is mind-boggling. I guess maybe his logic
1: uh, was, well, I have some non-Nazi-related clown material, and I'll just use that in this. Hardly Working is basically, it's plotless, right? It's about a clown who loses his job and has to find a new job, right? If you were a fan of Jerry Lewis's earlier films from the 60s, I can't see that you would like these ones. And if
0: you were new to Jerry Lewis, I can't imagine that this would win you over. I remember because the original the tagline for this thing on the poster was the original jerk. And this was the year after Steve Martin released the jerk. I remember walking out offended as a comedy fan that he would have the balls to compare himself to The Jerk or to compare this movie to The Jerk. And it's funny because The Jerk really is a series of loosely related sketches as well. Yes, Davin's a character. Yes, we kind of follow him through, but The Jerk is kind of, you go from setup to setup and gag to gag.
1: Yeah, oh, it's a pure vehicle for Steve Martin, but it still does have an arc to it. It's not just a, a, a randomly collected series of sketches. You know.
0: Well, and it's clear that, that in some way, Steve Martin learned a lot from the successful uh, Jerry Lewis films of the 60s and the 50s. And I love some of those films. I genuinely adore The Bellboy, The Errand Boy, movies like that, which were just pure, beautiful film comedies. And his eye for scope back then was almost unparalleled. I think what shocked me about this film is how ugly it is, how Barely functional it is as a movie. Oh yeah, it looks like a it looks like a chintzy pilot for
1: a t- t- NBC sitcom. And and and, and, the, and and again, the sad thing is, his next two films were arguably even worse.
0: Yeah. Well, it's weird. This was not actually even picked up for distribution in the U.S. at first. It was made independently. It played around the world and started making money. And it was only after it made a certain amount of money that 20th Century Fox bought it and arranged to release it here, and then it tanked. And so I think the lesson clearly was that uh, Jerry worked better in countries where they didn't understand English. Yeah. Anyway. Our next film is a much better comedy.
1: (laughs) It is a a kind of a rarity for 1980 because it is an ensemble that stars three women, and uh, all of them are quite good. Um, It's called How to Beat the High Cost of Living. It stars Susan St. James, Jane Curtin, and Jessica Lange. Jane, Louise, Elaine. Three girls who are in the same trouble as millions of Americans. I need more money. I cannot swing it on $200 a month child support anymore. Oh, that's the deal we made when you left me. That's what the court order says. You divorced me, remember? $200 a month four years ago has my kids drinking Kool-Aid instead of milk twice a day. Do you know what I did today, Louise? I sold a used flea collar to a cocker spaniel. Yes, and tomorrow I may take out a cat's appendix whether he wants me to or not. As uh three average, everyday women who, uh, decide that they're going to steal money instead of earning it. And, uh, what I remember, as you remember, Drew, from this movie, is, of course, that it has one of the oddest and most jarring body double boob shots you'll ever see <laughs> in a movie, uh, where I believe it's Susan St. James is stripping, and she takes off her top, and it's just boobs. Really, girls? You don't have to go that far. <laughs> You'll have to go much further.
0: At eight years old, I didn't really care. But you see it now and you're like, oh, God. Well, I was I was a big SNL fan at that point. So I was desperate to see it when it came out because uh, Jane Curtin was in it. And that to me was a big deal. And Jessica Lange and not really, you know, she got destroyed critically when King Kong came out. Mm-hmm. And then turned around and really started to rebuild her career quickly and try to figure out how to survive that sort of critical drubbing. Um, and I, I think it was very smart of her to throw herself into ensemble work and to figure things out. And I'll, I'll say this about her. Jessica Lang was game for almost anything at that point.
1: As terrible as she is in King Kong, clearly the couple of years she took off and the classes she took paid off. Because yeah. when she came back, not right away, she grew into one of America's best actresses without question well and there was was
0: a hunger to what she did she really wanted to be taken
1: seriously yeah by mid by the mid 80s she had completely re reimagined herself and became a real a great actor
0: it's interesting also that um one of the best uh Films, film comedies of this era that uh, featured a female ensemble is Nine to Five.
1: Yeah, I was going to say that in the next segment. Yeah, and well, this and light like, kind of
0: beat it to the theaters. Well, in like Nine to Five, Dabney Coleman's in this, mm-hmm. and it's funny. I just showed the boys, um, my my two kids, uh, War Games yesterday, and there's Dabney Coleman again, and that was basically their introduction to the world of Dabney Coleman, who was omnipresent. If you needed a scumbag between about 1978 and 1991, Dabney Coleman was your go-to dude. Well, uh, for a man who's taken five cold showers in the last 12 hours, I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> can I uh, can I come in for a minute? A minute? 20. And he was great at it. God, oh, phenomenal. Yeah, it's it's not a bad movie. It's not a great movie either. But it's it's one of those that I remember being amiable enough and a cable mainstay It was on cable nonstop yep. for years after it came out.
1: I, I Now, looking back on it, I find it kind of questionable that a film that's arguably about, you know, feminism and female empowerment has to have a blatant.
0: Booby shot. <laughs> oh, yeah. During the, during the climax of the film. Well, and but, this guy, the, the director of this, this was it as far as features went. He yeah. is a huge TV dude mm-hmm. who worked for years and years and years on television stuff. And it was like his one big shot at theatrical releases. Well, yeah. Uh, my, the, the, the most interesting thing about
1: how to beat the high cost of living is the cast. And it goes to show you that a movie can be very flimsy and, and lightweight and simple. But if you put good actors in it people will still think
0: fondly of it 30 years later uh our next movie is one that i I have a fondness for um it's by harold becker uh who you know as the director of taps sea of love uh i really like this one it's a weird weird tonal film though it's called the black marble and it is an adaptation of a joseph wamba novel the black marble a motion picture different than anything joseph wamba has ever written
1: Welcome, Natalie. Get some vodka, will you? Sure. They're hard to get right. The tone is
0: really arch but dark at the same but, time. It, he found he? I think he found police work ridiculous. And I think he really was into the dark, weird comedy that was inherent to guys who worked as cops and the world of being a cop at that time. And so... Uh, trying to get his stuff right on film seemed incredibly difficult. It's funny that we had Richard Benjamin in How to Beat the High Cost of Living because his wife, Paula Prentice, is in this one. And it's a romantic comedy, sort of, but it's also a cop movie about sort of a precinct melting down and a, and a larger mystery that's going on. Harry Dean Stanton is in it. Robert Foxworth is the lead. It's a mixed bag of a movie, but the things I like about it, I like a lot, and I, it's one of those I would love someday to see in scope, in actual two, three, five. I've only ever seen it pan and scan, and I've got to imagine it looks better than the versions I've seen, uh, which have all been just mutilated for cable. The film that Becker made right before this, The Onion Field, was also based on uh, Wamba novels, so they had a they had a real thing going on between the two of them, and uh, it was based on the fact that Wamba hated earlier films made from his work so he took control and uh kind of like a jk rowling he was like if you're gonna do my work you're gonna get right even he couldn't get his stuff right on film
1: yeah the choir boys is the one that i think of most commonly with him and that's also a the onion field is brilliant that's a great movie but um when it comes to like the light dark comedy of of the police and detectives a little inaccessible i think
0: and, and Becker is a guy who, uh, again, you want to talk about a journeyman director. Oh, yes. Yeah. Becker definitely had a lot of ups and downs over the course of his career and had a really hard time getting any momentum up. I think Taps is, is an, a deeply underrated movie. Yes. And uh, when we get to that one on this podcast, I'm going to have a lot to say. When don't you have a lot to say? I don't have a lot to say about the next film we're doing. Which is? Just tell me what you want. I want you to say you love me give romance a fighting chance just tell me what you are first of all it's a romantic comedy starring Allie mcgraw and alan king just taken as a concept i can't get my head around that i can't imagine who thought that was appealing or good casting or good god that's a, a weird mismatch the strangest thing about this movie by far is that it's directed by Sidney lumet if you tell me romantic comedy named five great directors who've worked in that that medium, I wouldn't have said Sydney Lumet ever. (laughs) It's based on a novel by Jay Preston Allen, and it's, as I understand it, a vaguely autobiographical novel. It's about a um, Allie mcgraw plays a TV producer who is sleeping with her boss, and the whole movie is basically about making him officially get together with her. The only good thing about this movie, in my opinion, it is the final film appearance by Marnell Loy. She still had her fastball. She, she gets off some pretty great one-liners. Her timing was impeccable right up to the end. Uh, and for those of you who don't know Myrna Loy, go track down the Thin Man movies about as good as it gets. Uh, what I remember about this month, the ones that I actually saw theatrically, I saw Hanger 18. I saw Hardly Working, And then I think both How to Beat the High Cost of Living and Black Marble were cable movies for me. And The Changeling definitely was a cable movie for me. This was that era where I started hitching a ride to anything my parents were going to see. And as long as it wasn't R, they would pretty much take me. And, you know, they would rather take me to see it and pay $4 for the ticket than pay a babysitter to watch me during it. Boy, did I work that angle as hard as I possibly could. We didn't get to start off with the
1: most scintillating month ever. And that's kind of what we're hoping that this podcast will be uh, for older viewers who are about our age. We're hoping it'll be a nice uh, trip down memory lane or maybe it will remind you of a couple of films you you recall but never saw. Uh, and we're kind of hoping even more, perhaps, that younger viewers, younger listeners will hear our uh, memories of the 1980s. And, um, well, A, appreciate the differences. Uh, it's not ancient history, but, you know, it's pretty, pretty long ago. And might appreciate the differences between the movie landscape then and the movie landscape now. But even more than that, we're hoping that you'll see. The experiences that Drew and I went through in the 80s being movie geeks, not all that dissimilar to what young movie geeks go through now, even though you're inundated with trailers and spoilers and nonstop set visits and articles, there's still that innate excitement uh, of seeing a new trailer, seeing a new movie, talking about something you really loved That. Cuts across any generation doesn't matter if you're your mom's age, your grandmother's age, it doesn't matter Uh, when it comes to like being uh, obsessed with movies. There are some
0: universal truths and uh, hopefully we'll we'll touch on some of those. One of the things that I'm fascinated about with this is I want to see I want people to understand that the 80s were not just the 10 films that everybody fetishizes from the 80s. And as much as I enjoyed seeing Stranger Things and I just finished watching with the kids, um, it fetishizes the same handful of movies that everybody fetishizes from the 80s. And I get it but at the same time that wasn't the whole decade not everything was Stephen King, Steven Spielberg, Joe Dante but that's the now, problem, yeah. is is a lot of younger fans especially when they talk to me about the 80s or when I see them talking about the 80s or I love 80s films it's Ghostbusters, the Goonies, Gremlins, Steven Spielberg, E.T., Poltergeist it's that it's the same 30 movies and oh. I'm I'm so tired of it guys the 80s was a crazy decade for movies because you had the end of the 70s still kind of playing out where you had independent visions working within the studio system. You had giant filmmakers trying to figure out where they fit in terms of the commercial world. And you also had all these young movie brats who had grown up on all these films and had grown up in the 50s who had suddenly gotten the ability to start making movies that were about other movies. And so you have this weird it's, it's several different schools of filmmaking happening all at the same time. And that collision to me is the 80s. So when you only fetishize one thing, you're not doing the decade justice. And part of what we hope to do here is we go through every month film by film and talk about all of it is show you just how rich and weird a decade it was and hopefully introduce you to a whole section of it yep. that you're unfamiliar with. I'm hoping that as you guys listen to this, that you don't jump ahead too far. Um, We want to kind of go through a month by month with you. Uh, But I will say, if you're looking to, uh, to get ready for our next episode, the February 1980 episode, I would really recommend that you check out American Gigolo or Hero at Large. And we'll have plenty to say about those and many, many more when we get back. For now, though, Scott, I think this went really well. Yep, I'm very um, pleased. Thank you, Drew. Thank you, Bobby Roberts, our phenomenal producer. And uh, guys, we want to hear what you have to say. We're going to be uh, starting to invite guests on as we go further into this. Other people that were there for these movies Um, in a perfect world. Hopefully we'll get some of the people that made these movies to come out and talk about the experience of working in the 80s. Um, And uh, we want to hear from you guys about what you're interested in, what you're excited by, and what your hopes are for this podcast as we move forward. We've got a lot of episodes 12 per year, plus some special ones that we'll be doing. Uh, it, it's going to be a long ride. We want you to buckle up and take the whole thing with us. So, And, and the bonus
1: is if, we, if it's as fun as it's been so far and we get a good reaction from people and it, it takes off to some degree, we will definitely continue uh, and start one for the
0: 90s. That's right, Bobby. We just added more work to your workload, so enjoy that. Oh, great. Uh, guys, we'll talk to you next time on 80s All Over. Thank you.